There is this amazing story in 2 Kings when King Josiah is ruling the southern kingdom of Judah as rival gods, rival gods are gaining Israel's political allegiance. And Israel just seems ripe for national reform. And the diagnosis of this situation from biblical experts is they have lost touch with their origin stories. Stories like the Exodus and covenantal justice have been a discarded image. And in this story, the Temple of Solomon is due for repair. And somehow, some way, in a back room where sacred relics of the past have been stored, there's a remarkable discovery. The high priest, he suddenly shouts out that he has found the book of the laws. Now, this is probably the book of Deuteronomy, which is the most cited Old Testament book in the New Testament. Walter Brueggemann writes that Deuteronomy has a peculiar and persistent uh, propensity for the poor and marginal and continually urges generosity and attentiveness towards widows, orphans, and sojourners, those who were legally and economically disinherited. You see, exploitation and caring for the poor is the major theme of the Deuteronomic Code. In fact, some of the regulations include mandating jubilee years, setting a year for the remission of debts, freeing slaves, equity in legal proceedings, and mandating that harvest leftovers remain in the fields for the hungry. Deuteronomy actually merged piety and economic practice, which is radical, at least for us in America, with capitalism. And the Deuteronomic Code demonstrates the way to worship God is to structure society around everyone's needs. And the people, they bound themselves and all of this in a covenant because God had led them out of slavery in Egypt. And so keeping the covenant was viewed for them as a matter of life and death. Now, I don't know how these people lost this sacred book. It was sacred. How did you lose that thing? Probably by neglect. But when this book was presented and read aloud to the king, he tears his clothes, he repents, and he calls for it to be read aloud to the people. And he demands a national reformation, a rebuke of the present national course. Clearly, a fresh reading of this book moved him with passion and with action. Imagine that today, spiritual leaders come upon Jesus' inaugural address, his first sermon recorded in the Bible in Luke 4. I got to preach on this passage here at Spark, and it is a breathtaking, change-making, historical Jesus story. You see, Jesus, he opens the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus, he closes the book and he challenges the audience to see what is happening in their midst. And he says, this is coming true today. I am the anointed one, and this 
is my mission. You see, Jesus was ushering in the kingdom of God. The world was about to change. What was up there was now to come down here. Imagine again that spiritual seekers today come upon Jesus' astonishing story in Matthew 25 about all the world gathered at the end of the age before Christ as judge. It is judgment day. And all of humanity is lined up to give evidence of authentic faith to determine whether they truly met the challenge of seeing Jesus whenever, wherever, and however he appeared. Jesus points them in the story to the homeless who needed to be housed, the hungry who needed to be fed, the thirsty who needed a drink, the imprisoned who needed to be visited, the sick who needed to be healed. And then he asked them a probing question. Did you see me? Did you see me in the least of these? Or did you pass on by? And the point is this, and you know this, how people, how the world responds to these, the least of these is how they've seen and grasped and responded to Jesus and his kingdom. A few months before his death, Martin Luther King Jr. was speaking at his own Ebenezer Baptist Church about how he wished to be remembered after his death. He said, I'd like somebody to mention that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to give his life serving others. I'd like for somebody to say that day that Martin Luther King Jr. tried to love somebody. And then, unmistakably echoing Jesus' words in Matthew 25, King went on and said, I want you to be able to say that day that I did try to feed the hungry. I want you to be able to say that day that I did try in my life to clothe those who were naked. I want you to be able to say on that day that I did try in my life to visit those who were in prison. And I want you to say that I tried to love and serve humanity. Friends, we have been covering Matthew 25 for the last four weeks because we think this passage is so important, it deserves the time. Now, I hate to rank verses because we all have our favorites, but I think this passage stands up there with John 3, 16, which is about salvation, and Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which is about going into the world and making disciples of people to live like Jesus. But Matthew 25, it's more than a pithy saying that comes from Proverbs. I believe Matthew 25 is fundamental fundamental to understanding the Bible and what it asks us to do because our actions, what we do are the marks of the church. We are asked, we are commanded to become like Jesus as we selflessly care for others because when we serve the least of these, we are serving Jesus. That has been the message for the last four weeks. And to be frank and quite direct and to twist this command just a little bit, and this may be hard to hear, it is for me, and you may disagree, and that's okay, because we're in spark. But when we don't serve the least of these, we don't serve Jesus. 
And maybe we even hurt Jesus, pain Jesus. You ever thought about that? Let me explain. One of my favorite authors is Jamar Tisby. Many of us have read his books, and he's come to spark in the past. He wrote an article called, recently, What What Can We Do About This? It's a story about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing by a white supremacist terror group in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963, where four black girls were killed. Clearly, this was a heinous crime that elicited outrage and grief, not only in Birmingham or the nation, but around the world. And a man, an artist from Wales, responded. He heard that the shockwave from the dynamite shattered most of the church's stained glass windows. And using inspiration from Matthew 25, where Jesus says, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, you did it to me. The stained glass artist, he wanted to show that acts of racial terrorism did not just brutalize black people, they wounded the heart of Jesus as well. His beautiful design shows a black figure, his chest thrust out and arms outstretched as though on a crucifix, and the right one pushing away hatred and injustice, and the left offering forgiveness. And there's a rainbow representing racial diversity which arcs over the head of Jesus. And much like Jesus, the window, the window that still adorns the sanctuary of this church today, it represents God's love for harassed and oppressed people. And when they hurt, Jesus hurts. But I wonder, think about this. When we don't help the least of these, are we wounding the heart of Jesus too? It's something to think about. The issue of poverty appears throughout the Bible. Rick Warren counts 2,000 verses that mention God's concern for uh, poverty, those with poverty. According to Jim Wallace in the Old Testament, the suffering of the poor is the second most prominent theme. The first was idolatry. In the New Testament, one out of every 16 verses are about the poor. And in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's one out of every 10 verses. But despite all these passages, there are a small handful of verses that many people fixate on. And the most cited is Matthew 26, 11, which says, For you will always have the poor with you but you will not always have me. Which from a simple and literal reading seems to imply that poverty can never be ended. And the most important thing is to focus on God. But if we are willing to dig just a little deeper, this verse actually echoes Deuteronomy 15, especially verses four and five, which say, there should be no poor among you. No poor among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you, bless you if only, if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commandments I'm giving you today. Have you ever read this verse before? 
There will be no needy people if the people of God follow the commandments, the laws that God has given them. So when Jesus quotes this phrase in Matthew 26, that the poor will always be with you, may I suggest that Jesus, he isn't condoning poverty. He is reminding us that God hates poverty and has commanded us to end poverty. The truth is poverty is created by human beings, by their disobedience to God and neglect of their neighbor. You see, in God's kingdom, when up there is, true, when up there is truly down here, there will be no more poor people because poverty will not exist. And I know this idea of ending poverty may seem crazy. It may sound too ambitious that demands for human rights, human dignity are both politically inconceivable and impossibly expensive. And people will continue to quote the Bible arguing that since Jesus said the poor will always be with you, then somehow it can't be God's will for everyone to share in the abundance of our world. But when I read the Bible, what I see from Genesis throughout the New Testament is a constant revelation of God's will that no one, no one should be made hungry or sick or homeless or underpaid or indebted or bereft by the violence of social injustice. I read an ongoing indictment of those who would take and keep the wealth of our world for themselves. And as we read passages like Isaiah 10, woe to you who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice for the oppressed of my people, making their widows their prey and robbing the fatherless, the orphans. When we keep reading, I hear the biblical man to fill the hungry with good things, not simply as caring for the poor as an end result, but by building a movement, advocating for policies and structures that lift the load of poverty, admonishing nations like Jeremiah does to do no wrong to the immigrant, the homeless, the children, and do not shed innocent blood. Throughout our sacred scriptures, the codes, the policies, the laws, the regulations contained within the Bible, as well as the prophets and the gospels and the letters, there is a constant call to end exploitation, to attend to the poor. There's a mandate of Sabbath rest, jubilee years. There's a prohibition against charging interest on survival loans or profiting from any pandemic. There are commands to pay living wages promptly, to bring equity to all legal proceedings, to give everyone who asks of you, to welcome the immigrant neighbor, to care for the needs of the entire community, and yet again, to, to stop depriving the rights of the poor. Whether it is in the book of Moses, the prophetic critique, the parables, the ministries, God's beautiful creation is lauded. And God's intention for that abundance is to be a blessing for all, for all, not an elite few, is the central theme. In truth, the instruction, the lesson of Scripture is that society 
is to be organized around the needs of the poor, the suffering, the marginalized, and the needs of the earth. The message is that when we lift from the bottom, everybody rises. Nevertheless, even though the Bible tells us all of this, we live in the richest nation in human history. We're 175 million people. That's 52% of our population is either poor or one fire, one healthcare crisis, one job loss, one storm away from economic ruin. A nation where during the course of a healthcare pandemic, many in Congress who identify as Christian were obsessed that assistance to the poor might encourage them to be lazy. Where tens of millions of people lost their health care, adding to the 87 million people who already had inadequate health care before the pandemic. Where people with inadequate food jumped from 37 million to 130 million in the pandemic. This in a nation that throws away more food than it practically takes to feed everybody around the world, not just to hungry here. These, these are exactly the times when prophets are to rise up to remind us of God's demand for justice and God's judgment of those whose power and wealth rests on the dispossession of the rest of society. We all know here that Jesus' ministry began in a time that was not so different from ours when the Roman Empire was strangling millions of poor people and calling it peace. Jesus, he began his ministry drawing directly from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And that prophet goes on to proclaim liberty to the captives. A phrase that comes from those jubilee laws of Leviticus And reminds people that there should be no poor people among you if you are following the commandments of God. It teaches that as long as a nation, we forgive debts and we free those in bondage. When we give to others without any expectation that we will be paid back. When we care for each other in times of crisis. When we build a movement of those considered expendable and confront the powers and the principalities. When those that are wounded by deep social and economic wounds heal and heal through mutual solidarity and through moral action, that is when we stop depriving the rights of the poor. That is when there will be no one one needy or poor among you. But we are also warned that if we refuse to organize our society around the needs of the poor rather than the endless systemic greed of the powerful, then poverty, inequality, want will never be banished. It must be said that God does not condone poverty nor suggest that it is inevitable. Jesus Christ does not proclaim, I did not make enough food for everyone to eat. Jesus does not suggest that anyone should profit from a pandemic. He doesn't say, I want Peter to have to rob Paul to be able to pay our bills. There's nowhere in the Bible where he says, get a job to the homeless of our society. 
The Bible does not proclaim a little charity is as good as we can do, nor that the powerful should be exempt from paying taxes, but the poor should pay for the pleasures of the rich. And Jesus not once suggests that we should charge a leper a copay or to cut people from accessing health care in a public health care crisis. Let us remember that in the midst of this suffering and despair and the loss of life, that the God we follow cries out, I am the one who led you out of Egypt. That God reminds us that how we treat the poor, how we treat the immigrant neighbor, is how we honor and how we worship God. So today, let the Holy Spirit light a fire of protest in us and move us to help those people who have been left out and locked up and looked over and who speak many languages. I want to close by sharing another message from Reverend Dr. King about the beautiful world we are called to create. The night before he was killed, trying to bring justice and a movement for the change, he preached, it is all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all its symbolism, but ultimately people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey, but God has commanded us to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do. Those words from Martin Luther King, this is what we have to do. We have to put people over prophets into here and now. We live in the midst of a time that so desperately needs change, a time of great change and transformation where when the old ways of society are dying and new ones are being born. There are emergencies going on, and we as God's people, we need brigades of ambulance drivers willing to nonviolently disrupt the existing order. We are living in a valley of dry bones like the prophet Ezekiel, and we must cry out, can these bones live? In this moment, the sick, the uninsured, are saying to the leaders of our faith communities, our politicians, if you choose, you can heal me, much like that leper said. We can accomplish much if we come together, build together, organize together, unite together. We must address the interlocking issues and injustices of racism and poverty and ecological devastation. We must reject the distorted narrative of religious nationalism. We must solve basic problems and restructure our society around the people. We cannot and will not be silent anymore because what is good news for the poor if it is not ending the poverty and suffering in this life, right? Friends, may we be part of a social movement that is committed and determined to do our part to help the poor as we honor and as we worship 
God. And the people said, amen. We're going to shift right now to uh, a time for our communion, really to remember God, a God that hears our cries, a God that cares for all people, and that his abundance should be a blessing for all. For the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at the table.